You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with CJ Avila, who is using Rails to build a fundraising campaign management tool. CJ, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. How's it going? Doing good. Happy to have you on. Do you want to introduce yourself and let people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to talk about today? Sure. Yeah. So I'm CJ Avila. I'm a developer advocate at Stripe. So I basically help people integrate the Stripe API to accept payments. And before that, I had several product engineering roles. I taught at a boot camp called App Academy. I really like teaching and I've recently just started a YouTube channel where I've been sharing a lot of sort of beginner and intermediate content for folks getting started with web development. But I'm super excited today to talk about this fundraising tool that I built uh, a long time ago and that's been running in production with very, very little maintenance. So yeah, excited to jump into that. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it was really funny. As soon as you pop on the call here, I had actually seen one of your YouTube videos, but I didn't know it was you until you hop on the call here. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's great to uh, recognize familiar faces from the internet. So yeah. So going back to this app here, you know, you mentioned very little maintenance. Things are just humming along for quite some time. Do you want to rewind and like just walk us through what it was like to develop this app in the first place? Like, was it just you working on it? How long did it take to make the MVP, et cetera? Yeah, totally. So um, I actually built this same tool or built a tool to solve the same problem in like 2006. Uh, and I used back then I used ASP.NET web forms, which was sort of the tool that I kind of knew at the time. Uh, and then over time, it got a little a little bit rusty and crusty. And so I rebuilt it in 2015 using Ruby on Rails. Um, and for both applications, I was the sole developer. It's kind of like for a single client. It's a nonprofit here in town that needed to, a tool for managing sort of their relationship with the donors for a campaign and to just sort of like manage their fundraising efforts. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of like the, like the, the 10,000 foot view of, um, of how it started. But uh, I, yeah, I mean, like over the, over the years, I've built like several little side projects. And yeah, so this was, this was one that sort of came out of a direct need for a specific client. And uh, yeah, it was basically just me as the the sole developer for this project. Cool. So do you want to talk maybe a little bit about what the rewrite process was like? Because I always find it interesting to like rewrite something you've built in the past, even with a different tech stack, it kind of feels like, you know, like exactly what you're getting into. Did you find it like a lot easier the second time around? It was infinitely easier the second time around because you kind of have a much better and clearer view of the domain. And the first time that I built it, I, ha- I didn't have tons of experience. I was like, you know, uh, I'd only done a couple of years of CS in university and I kind of had just been outside of university teaching myself a handful of web things to get this up and running. And, and um, I was essentially just copying and pasting stuff from Stack Overflow and hoping that everything would work and just kind of... Uh, if I got it working, I was happy, you know? And so then this for the rewrite, I was able to go in it with fresh eyes, with many more years of experience, and with a lot of opinions about the right way to do things or the things that had bitten me in the past and that I wanted to sort of avoid. Um, and so one of the things with the rewrite that was a little challenging was doing a giant data migration from like an old Microsoft SQL server to this new Postgres server. Um, and, uh, so that was, that was kind of fun figuring out how I'm going to structure the new data models so that I can do a clean migration from all having all of that old historical data into the new system. But yeah, I think definitely coming into a rewrite with fresh eyes and uh, a really clear understanding of the domain was super helpful 
That said, I know that like re rewrites are attempting, but I, I would generally recommend against them unless you have like, uh, yeah, pretty solid reasons. So um, in this case, it was the old version was running on-prem, like on some Microsoft's uh, like Windows server, like 2005 or 2008 or something. Uh, and they had like, we had backups that were being written to tape and we were, we had this whole process for bringing tapes off to cold storage. And, um, it was just, it was, uh, it was kind of a nightmare having it on-prem. And so I was excited to get it into the cloud and, um, this client in particular, it took a little bit of convincing and some, some working with them to help teach and educate them about how like the cloud is a perfectly viable and, and in fact, probably the better alternative. <laughs> so, um, Yeah. That's a little bit more context about why we did the migration or why we did the rewrite, basically. Nice. Yeah, I'm actually really curious to hear, like, what did you say to your client to make them believe or let them know, like, hey, you know, the future is not hosting it on-prem and using tape to backup on SQL Server from 10 years ago? Yeah, so the, I think the most convincing thing was essentially... Um, showing a bunch of stickers or other big brands that were already running in the cloud. So yeah, instead of saying like, uh, here are all the security benefits. I, instead, I said, look at these giant companies that are already running in the cloud that you are definitely using. And how, like the, the fact that they're running in the cloud should give you the confidence that you should also run in the cloud. Um, so I, I basically went down the list and I asked them like, you know, what are some services that you use for online shopping for, uh, you know, entertainment? Are you watching Netflix? Are you, you know, doing all of these basic things that we all know are happening in the cloud and then kind of walking back and researching, okay, all of these big companies, where are they actually hosted? Most of them were on AWS. And so then coming to them and saying like, look, it's super safe. We can use it. All of these companies that you're using already are either on, uh, yeah, AWS or some other cloud platform. And, uh, that, I think that was kind of like the the selling point was just like, look at what all these other folks are doing and you can do the same thing and we'll be just as secure and um, just as happy moving forward. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great way to go about it for sure. And and when it came for Rails itself, like did you have to sell them on Rails or did they come with you as a, as an option? The, the, the client was never particular about any tech stack. And so I had learned Rails from the time, like between the time that I had built the original and when I had built the new one. And for me, the choice to use Rails was one about um, speed. And I think that like when, when choosing a tech stack out of the box, when you're building any new product, in my opinion, it makes sense to pick the thing that you're going to be able to move the fastest in. And I'm not saying necessarily that Rails is the thing that you can build tools the fastest, but I'm saying that's what I, as the developer, was most comfortable with. And so I was confident that I could move really quickly. Um, in my day job, I was working with Django and then I had previously built this thing with ASP.NET and I had, you know, played around with tons of different tech stacks and I knew that building in Rails was going to be the fastest way to just kind of iterate on features and get stuff out the door. And so that's the, the reason that I chose Rails basically was that, yeah, developer velocity. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's nothing better than just sitting down for like a weekend or like three days and like at the end of the three days, you're like, whoa, like I didn't just make like, you know, the homepage. It's like, 20% CAP is almost done. Like, yeah, exactly. yeah, you get some like real features in there. Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, I want to say the development for the entire thing took between maybe a hundred and 120 hours of just nights and weekends, sort of grinding it out as fast as I could basically. And then, uh, yeah, just, I mean, the, the, the initial version was sort of shipped 
to the client. And then I would, I would go and sit down with the client and build features in real time that they would ask for. So I would just like sit next to them and they would say, oh, this doesn't work as expected. Or they would say, oh, I wish it did this. Or I would watch them after we sort of worked through a bunch of like the feature completeness of the tool, I would watch them and see what their process was and try to remove clicks from their process so that I could either teach them hotkeys to move quicker, or I could just remove clicks to make, to make a certain screen like as fast as possible. Um, so yeah, I think rails definitely lent itself really well to being able to just kind of like sit down and bang out features as fast as possible for me. So. Wow. You are now like the bravest person I know like just <laughs> sitting down there live with a client, like literally live coding features with them. That's it's, amazing. It, well, it's, I think, Honestly, I think that was kind of the key to this to success of many of the applications that I've built is trying to get as close as you can to the customer and keeping things as simple as possible. Like those two, I think those two keys have um, have have lent themselves really well to to building successful products that I'm like actually trying to sell to other people. So yeah, that's. I've made like one major mistake was I built this, I've I've spent many, many years building a tool that I planned on selling and then literally no one ever bought it because I think it was just features that I wanted basically and no one else found value in or I did poor marketing or I hadn't actually validated the idea with customers. And so, yeah, after sort of wasting like many, many (laughs) hours and months of my life building this tool for tracking uh, stock ideas, uh, yeah, I, I went... I always try to go and sit down with the customer and listen to the customer very carefully. So, Yeah, that's a very good advice. Before we start peeling away some of the tech choices here in the app, do you want to give us a rundown of like what this application actually does? Like you don't need to explain every screen, but like what types of things are on certain pages, et cetera? Yeah, so it, it's a essentially like the there's a landing screen where you can see um, the current campaign. So a campaign might be for one year or for several years where they're trying to raise funds for different projects. Maybe they're trying to build buildings or they're trying to, you know, improve, improve different things. And so they'll, on the main screen, they'll see sort of the tracking of pledges and payments to date over time. And so the way that the app works is that they generally will reach out to certain um, campaign donors and will ask for a pledge. So someone will say like, Oh, I pledged a thousand dollars or I pledge a million dollars. And, I'm going to pay that over a series of X months or something. And so they would uh, track these pledges. And so there's a, a page where you can sort of uh, where the like backend staff can enter in all of the pledges. And if they receive payments that are either cash or stock or check or whatever, they can manually enter those um, and sort of just keep track over time of, of uh, the campaigns that they're running. There's a bunch of integrations for messaging out to those donors. So we've got integrations with like MailChimp and Constant Contact for sending drip email campaigns. We've got Twilio integrations for sending text message campaigns, things like that. And then so the the, the main screen that the back office uses is this sort of like pledge and payment entry form. Uh, and then there's a, there's several other little components that are sort of customer facing where, um, you know, a donor can go to a page and make a payment. Uh, and then we also have sort of little widgets that can be embedded for each of those campaigns so that on external third-party websites, they can drop in a chart that shows their progress towards, you know, successfully meeting their goal of a certain campaign. So that's kind of, I guess that's sort of the meat and potatoes. There's like some reporting tools that they can run reports and see how they're doing. Um, and then some like auditing tools for nonprofits. They're often audited to see, you know, make sure that money isn't disappearing. So uh, I've got some fun little auditing things. Um, that I've built in using the audited gem. And 
yeah, I think from from a high level, that's basically that's basically it. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like we have a lot of great stuff to get into for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like okay, so for the admin backend or back office side of things, is that something you wrote like a custom uh, solution for, or did you end up using a built-in gem for that? Um, yeah. So everything is custom um, in terms of like I didn't I didn't yeah I didn't use like Rails admin or any of those sort of backend tools. Um, yeah. So like all of the crud is is all basically custom. Okay. And you know, you mentioned this, this app has been running for quite some time now, a couple of years. What version of Rails do you happen to use right now? So I'm on 4.2. <laughs> I know this is, this is going to sound a little crazy, but um, yeah, I, I, uh, I started on, on Rails 4.2 and then I've just kind of like been, been making like the bare minimum security patch updates and things. And I went back and looked before the call and I, I've made a total of 39 commits since this thing went live. <laughs> So over yeah over many many years it's the the total maintenance has been very very low so yeah for Rails four two still yeah that's awesome to hear yeah I forget exact timelines but I actually started with Rails at four and I feel like that may have been two thousand thirteen two thousand fourteen something like that is that like in that era of when you started maybe two thousand fourteen two thousand fifteen yep it was so I think I broke ground September twenty fifteen and yeah the the oldest commit is in September so yeah I think. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was like the first time I touched it and it's exactly the same app as, uh, yeah, from September 2015. So whatever the latest version of Rails was at the time, <laughs> that was uh, that was what I used. So Now, when it comes to accepting payments from people who want to create donations, do you have all sorts of different payment uh, systems integrated, like credit card through Stripe and PayPal and whatever else maybe? Yeah, so the I only integrated Stripe um, and at the time, I was looking into implementing several different payment processors um, and the client actually has like a very close relationship with another payment provider called Elevon. So we have a separate payment page for Elevon. They're, yeah, I mean, they're just, uh, at the time I wanted to sort of build this out so that many people could use it. It was like multi-tenant and it ended up just being that single client, but I wanted to offer the ability to plug into tons of different payment processors. Um, But because we didn't take on any other users, I just kind of stuck with Stripe and, and uh, Elevon. I think that's a great example of like not going off in the cave and developing like 17 different providers for a year when really your client just wants one for now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's like part of, part of the key to having this thing run forever is like keeping it as simple as possible. Just talk to the customer, find out what they want and build just that and nothing more has been, yeah, has been <laughs> very helpful. So. Yeah. I'd be curious in that case, like it is very nice when you can just build something for one person. But, you know, like you mentioned before, you kind of thought about maybe making this multi-tenant and selling it to different people. It's so nice to like actually build something for one person rather than try to create all these abstractions beforehand before you build it. Like, is that like the path that led you down to keeping things simple, I guess, right? Just like really stuck to your guns. This is for one person, not a hundred people. I don't need like all these abstractions. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so I think what we did was like, we kind of did a little bit of customer development outside of this one client and found that we would need to, to kind of adjust, like the, the this specific client had a lot of interesting needs. And so we built some tools very specific to them. And the reality was that like, it made sense just to keep running it for them. Technically for that one client, we've actually had, I went and looked, we have over 400 users for the one client. Uh, so it's it's worked just fine for their use case and for their sort of like narrow specific needs, but that's definitely helped a ton with keeping it simple. There's, there's a couple other choices that I made too with the app that I think uh, also kept things really, really simple. And that was just like using the built-in tools from Rails 
95, 98% of the time, like you can get surprisingly far building just the default HTML ERB with normal forms and normal controllers without any crazy JavaScript or, you know, any crazy front end. Um, and I think that people would be really surprised if they tested out how snappy an application is if they just use the defaults. Um, and so uh, there is no there is no front end frameworks. I, I use a couple of JavaScript libraries for charting and for doing a little bit of real time. Um, and I, I saw that I was using Lodash for some utility stuff, but outside of that, there's no front end framework. There's no, um, yeah, it's there's no fancy fancy uh, React or at the time it probably would have been Backbone or Ember <laughs> or something. And so, yeah, I think that has also helped a ton to keep things just really, really simple and uh, just decreasing the number of dependencies as much as possible so that over time, the the maintenance is just very, very low. So Yeah, that's really cool, really cool to see because I feel the same way as you, like server render templates, sprinkles of JavaScript, keep things as simple as possible. It really does go a long way, especially like if you're actually happy with that decision, you're not constantly thinking like, oh, I wish I did this or like, what about that thing? It's like, no, heads down and just go. Yep, exactly. So the one page that is like the most trafficked page uh, for this backend admin. I did write quite a bit of JavaScript just to make it super, super fast for them, for their process to decrease like the time and the number of clicks. But that was the only page where I sprinkled in JavaScript and really like added added a ton of uh, interactivity. But everywhere else in the site, there's tons of crud for creating donors and managing, yeah, managing other parts of the campaign that are all just, yeah, just the basics, so. Now, you mentioned a couple of things that I really would like to cover, but let's start with, you said you have one client and they have about 400 users. Does that mean like 400 users signed up to their platform to become like, hey, by the way, like I have a campaign that I like to run on this platform. And then of those 400 users, you know, they're all reaching out to whatever market research they have to get people to actually make donations to their campaigns. So it's like a client of clients, kind of. It is a little bit like that. It's more like there's just one central client and then they have thousands of employees or a thousand employees or something. And then 400 of those happen to use the application to enter data about different donors and run reports and see things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to get like an idea of like what type of scale are we at here in terms of like traffic or incoming donations and stuff, if you're able to share that info. Yeah. So we've processed over 30 million in donations since it went live. And um, so it's not, it's not a massive application and this has been running for years, but it, it is processing like, you know, real, pr pretty real money. And they've, they've handled donations that were over a million dollars at a time. So it's, yeah, I mean, there's most of the donations are like five to $10. And then there's obviously kind of like a, whatever, like a normal curve that you would expect for a donation site, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. almost all the long tail donations are five, 10, $20 at a time. But, um, yeah, so 30 million donations. I don't know exactly, like, I wouldn't say that the requests per second are anything, like, surprising, right, um, when we have so few so few users. But um, we've had about 80,000 donors managed. So, yeah, I think of those donors, I don't actually know how many have donated directly through the site or who have contacted the back office directly. So Right. Yeah, I think, like, from, like, a request per second point of view, I mean... Almost every site is not going to be super impressive. I mean, just having a site like this is awesome where you're really helping a business put together like 30 million plus in donations and keeping it simple and it all works. Like, it's really cool just to see that get to that point with something so, um, I guess, not easy to develop because it sounds like it was a lot of work to get it all set up and going for sure. But it's, it's a nice, nice story to hear. Yeah, I think like, again, coming back to just like the fact that it's been running so long with so little maintenance is also like... 
I think part of the dream for a lot of these indie hackers who are setting up side businesses and want to run sort of this uh, recurring income or, you know, recurring income businesses, SaaS businesses and platforms. Uh, part of the issue that I ran into early, early in my career was building a lot, a lot of times building these tools, if you weren't listening super carefully to the customer or you weren't keeping it simple, you could end up just burying yourself in support and burying yourself in, you know, bugs and issues that are coming up and it can be really, really stressful. And so keeping it super, super simple, you can actually build a tool that runs almost entirely on its own with very little maintenance for many years and still kind of like pays, pays decently well. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, you know, you mentioned recurring there and it just like sparked something in my brain. Do you accept reoccurring donations like monthly donations or is is it always just like one-off payments? We do sometimes recurring donations. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So then like, do you have that built into Stripe, like using some of their APIs or did you build your own functionality at the application level to kind of do it? We built it at the application level to do it because I I don't remember actually if Stripe billing was supported at the time. But uh, yeah, if we were to, if I were to rebuild it today, it would absolutely use Stripe Building. <laughs> so Stripe Building is the the tool inside of Stripe that um, supports recurring payment for folks that are uh, unfamiliar with that. All right, because check it out, CJ actually works at Stripe. Like, yeah, you know the tool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting though. Like one million dollar donation, or even one million plus. Like yes. That is a big donation. Like, I wonder what type of credit card you have to have that to have that type of limit. Right. So those donations are generally like wire transfers, um, or they'll be like you know 500k in in uh, in cash, and then 500k in stock in some company or something. Sometimes. So. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, there are there are certain um, payment method types that you can use on Stripe and and also just um, in general that have lower transaction fees. So generally, when you're talking about a credit card payment, most of the times, if you're using a normal processor, you're going to pay, you know, close to like 3% or something for the payment. Um, but if you're using uh, ACH or wire transfer, these these tend to have much, much lower processing fees that are involved. So generally, if you have a payment, I think that's over like $10,000 or something, many times you would use um, a different payment method from a credit card just to, to decrease those fees. Right. Yeah, it's also like making me smile, like laughing inside a little bit to think about like a million dollar transaction with like a Stripe 2.9%, but then there's like the 30 cents on top of that. Yeah, yeah, the 30 <laughs> so cents. Such like, like microscopic amount. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting the the economics as they, as they uh, you know, the, the size of the payment increases. Um, but yeah, I think one interesting thing that I would recommend a lot of folks look into if they're, if they're doing payment processing and they're curious about processing fees is different payment method types, especially if you're paying or if you're if you're collecting payment from customers that are outside of the US. So in the US, we're like really accustomed to credit cards and we're really credit card centric. But in other countries, in many other countries, the preferred online payment method is not credit card. They have um, like in, in the Netherlands, they use this payment method called ideal. In uh, in Latin America, for example, in, in Mexico, they have a, a payment method called OXO. In Brazil, they have a payment method called Boleto. There's just there's so many different payment method types around the world that customers would just prefer to pay with, and many times those payment method types will have lower processing fees than cards, and so you can have higher conversion by offering lots of different payment method types, but then also maybe maybe even lower lower processing fees. So, yeah, if that's interesting to folks, I can go I can go deeper into that too. Yeah. I think it is interesting. Like, do you have any recommended reading, like a blog post that I can link into the show notes maybe? Um, yeah, I can. Yeah, I can definitely look something up and find um, some reading for that. Uh, I th- so if you're using Stripe Checkout, 
which is the Stripe hosted payment flow. Uh, right now, you can redirect customers to Stripe checkout and add the just add the name of the payment method type you want to support into a list of payment method types. Long term, we'd love to just remove that entirely so that we can dynamically sort of compute which payment method types customers would like and which ones you've sort of enabled in the dashboard. And then uh, it'll like automatically just collect payment from users using what they what they want to use. We're also rolling out, we announced this in, in June, a new payment element that you can drop into your website that'll also let you present lots of different payment method types just directly from a single element. And so yeah, there's that one is in private beta, but yeah, I'd love to love to share out the link if people are interested in looking at that too. So yeah, that sounds really, really nice. Like it's not like I don't like the checkout feature, but I find myself usually implementing Stripe using the elements feature. So having that ability is very nice because yeah, if you're in a country that doesn't want to use credit cards, it makes sense to give the payment option that makes the most sense for there. Totally, totally. Yep, yep. Now, speaking of Stripe in general and this application being a couple of years old, one thing that I really like about Stripe is your API is one of the most stable APIs like I've ever worked with like in my whole entire life. <laughs> like, are, are you using like an API version from 2015 or 16 or whatever? Yes, <laughs> I think it's, uh, oh gosh, um, I need to look, I need to, I would need to look this up. But yeah, I'm sure it's whatever API version I was when I, it was when I set it up. Um, and I'm, I'm using the Stripe, Stripe Ruby client library probably a super old version of that and it just keeps humming um, one of the sort of things that stripe has told a lot of founders especially when you know kicking off their first payment integration is that we won't we won't break your api moving forward and we don't want to like remove features now i don't think that's going to necessarily be true forever but it has been true for the last decade so yeah it's the if you are on a very old api version the API should still work exactly as you expect from, you know, even back to 20, 2013 or so. Yeah. Cause I think your app is like a perfect, like the best example of that ever. It's like, it's in super low maintenance mode, but you just don't want to wake up one day where the API just breaks. And now it's like to do an API update on that type of application. It's like really dangerous. I would imagine because like payments are pretty important and that would be a big change. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But as you might imagine, right? Like maintaining an API that works for all the different API versions makes it really, really challenging to add new features and uh, and also make bug fixes because those might have like behavioral changes all the way down the line or for old versions or for new versions. And so um, I don't actually know how many API versions Stripe has cut over time, but it, it is quite challenging to maintain that sort of contract with our users. And so I, I don't know for sure if it'll if it'll continue to stay to stay exactly that way, but it's definitely something that we would um, that we strive to do is provide an API that is incredibly stable and and reliable and something you can sort of like build once and forget about basically. Right. So basically, what you're saying is you or someone else from Stripe needs to come on the show and talk about Stripe specifically for an hour because <laughs> yeah. I feel like we can just like sidetrack this whole episode about that. But I don't want to do that. But like, I would love to do that at some point in the future. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I would. Um, yeah. I've got folks in mind. I would be happy to chat too. And yeah, that would. Yeah, would love to love to go into some depth with Stripe stuff. So. Yeah, but. Let's rewind, talk a little bit about your app. So you're using the official Stripe Ruby gem. Do you have any other gems in your gem file that may help? Well, that, well, that did help people this application. It's going to be funny because it's almost going to be like time traveling back to 2015 and 16, uh, but let's hear it. Exactly, yeah. So um, so actually, like some of them that I would still recommend today, was maybe we start there, is like SendGrid for transactional email. 
Twilio, I said Twilio and MailChimp and Constant Contact. Those are for sort of like, you know, interacting with folks. And then one that is definitely time travel, I was using Paperclip. Um, so now we've got active storage. I was also using um, Pusher for doing my real time, um, anytime, like real time updates where I'm pushing to the client. And now you would use something like Turbo with, you know, Action Cable or whatever, the built in WebSockets that's part of Rails. So uh, I think outside of that, we've got. Uh, a USPS gem, and I'm using the USPS API to validate addresses so that when we're sending out physical mailers, those are going out to the real addresses. I could probably just run down the whole list here, but I'm using like Rollbar for my error monitoring, Paper Trail for logging. I used New Relic a bit for doing metrics tracking, but I've found that just Heroku's dashboard is actually like good enough for what I'm doing. And then yeah, like nearly everything is just on free tiers and also just, you know, running on Heroku. And uh, yeah, Heroku has been really, really great for all the side projects that I've built basically, you know, for the last eight years or so. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Definitely want to talk more about the Heroku side, but it's like really super cool to hear that you run mostly free tier stuff because it's like this business over, you know, six years generated 30 million in donations. And yeah, it is like a nonprofit and stuff, but I mean, I would imagine they take some kind of that donation to do something, right? Mm-hmm. I know Kickstarter, what, what is their percentage, like 10% or whatever? Like, yeah, it's like you're generating all this like money on the side for uh, nonprofit stuff, but still on free tier. Yeah, I think that, so yeah, for the, the Heroku build, like, so on Heroku, I'm running a standard 1x dyno for the web and I'm running a standard 2x dyno for my like background workers. And the bill is about 99 bucks a month total for like all the different services and all the dynos and everything. So that doesn't include the domain, which is another tiny, you know, tiny fee, but all in it's like, you know, just under a hundred bucks a month or around a hundred bucks a month. So, yeah, that's awesome to hear. Now, going back to your tech stack here, or more specifically, you mentioned, you know, a real-time component there using Pusher. Is that kind of just to like update the live like donation amount or something like on a dono page? Yeah, so there's a couple usage uses. One of them is to update the chart automatically as people donate, so it kind of will like animate and uh, grow as people donate. That was kind of like a whiz bang feature to help sell it. Um, and then we've also got, when people run reports, sometimes the reports crunch a lot of data. And so I will run the report in a background task, upload the final result to S3, and then I will push an update to the client that says, you know, click here to go see your updated report or whatever, download your report. So not, not, not too fancy, but um, yeah, that's what I'm using Pusher for is just, just telling people when background jobs are, are done basically. Yeah. Yeah. I remember using Pusher quite some time ago. It's like, it is so crazy at how easy they make it just to like broadcast events from server side to the client. Exactly. Yeah. There's, I think the, the Ruby gem, I I'm also on like a free tier for Pusher too. So um, there's a Ruby gem you install and then you just make like a, a single method call. I think you have to maybe like, yeah, set up an initializer with an API key or something. And then you make a single method call to broadcast. And yeah, Pusher just sends out a broadcast message. And then I have like a tiny bit of JavaScript on the front end that just listens for events, just the same way you would listen for a click event. It's like, okay, on some Pusher data, do something. And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it was surprisingly handy. I actually was like looking into building out a whole separate Node.js service using WebSockets um, back in the day because I was like, oh, maybe maybe it would be better to just run run this myself and have you know have control of what um, what real time updates are going out to who and maybe trying to do a little bit more uh, locking it down. But I found that just using Pusher by itself was more than enough. So 
Yeah. It's really funny you bring that up because I had the same exact thought process, like, I don't know, maybe like seven or eight years ago. And I ended up doing that with the node setup, but I ended up using a tool called Faye. Have you heard about that one? I have not. No. Okay. I don't want to get super deep into it, but yeah, it was like, I don't know, a hundred lines of node backend code to get it all up and running. And then you can make post requests from your uh, like rail site or whatever to send it to it. It worked out, but yeah, pusher way easier. Now, do you use any features of pusher like private channels and stuff or no? I don't think so. I would, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I would have to like dig into it. Yeah. Um, that, and like those might be features that are newer. Yeah. I don't, I don't think we're using anything. So maybe now we can switch gears a bit and just talk a little bit more about your tech stack, like in terms of like, are you using Postgres? And you mentioned, you know, background workers. So maybe using Sidekick or something else. You have maybe Redis running, et cetera. Yeah, totally. So I'm using Postgres. I, I really like Postgres um, because sometimes I'll reach down and use a JSON field every once in a while <laughs> to store some stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of Postgres. And then I use Redis and Rescue actually for my background for my background stuff. Um, I, I've played with Delay Job and I've used Sidekick before, but uh, I think at the time, something about getting Rescue set up on Heroku, it was just like the easiest the easiest route basically. And I've had no issues with it. I also like the the like Rescue web. I mean, they provide like a very simple sort of web interface for seeing which jobs are failing or not failing. There's also like gems that I've got so that roll bar can also report errors that are happening both uh, live and in the background. So yeah, Re rescue has been great. I actually use rescue on a lot of my, a lot of my side projects um, for background stuff. Nice. Yeah. And then I'll often just use like the built-in Heroku scheduler for doing cron. And then I will have the scheduler run a rake task that just kicks off the background task. So yeah, I found that, that like sort of pairing really, really handy, just kind of like yeah, running running Heroku scheduler and then running a rake task to be yeah more than enough for for uh, the stuff that I'm doing. Yeah, I really like that approach because it's like yeah that keeps that logic out of your app and it's kind of just like Heroku basically executing a cron job except not a cron job. Yeah, exactly, exactly. the The one thing that bothers me about scheduler is that they only give you five minute granularity, or it might it might be like now you can do five minute, but before you could only do ten minute, and so I. Had to do a bunch of hacks to get around that where I would like schedule it. I would schedule 10, <laughs> 10 Heroku scheduler things that would go off one minute apart so that I could get it down to a, to actually running, um, you know, like once a minute. So nice. Yeah. That sounds like a funny hack, like around, like, I don't know, some service that's like, oh, you can only input 10 lines of code so that you just write like one really long line of code to like yep. bypass the thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, in terms of like background jobs and schedule jobs, do you want to go over like some of those things that you're doing in your app? Because you mentioned like pretty heavy, you know, crunching reports and stuff. Yeah. So I think the the biggest ones are reports. Um, and then, well, okay. So one of them is reports and one of them is sending out like uh, a monthly newsletter or like a monthly reminder of the pledge outside of the, okay. So the reporting one is generally just like pulling a bunch of data, running a bunch of SQL queries, and then spitting out a CSV that is then uploaded to S3. Uh, so that's like one background job. And then the other background job is uh, on a monthly basis, we run through and send an email reminder that has like the pledge amount and the remaining like amount that the person had said that they would pay. That one, um, I have sort of like a parent task that will run through and just figure out like who are all the people that need to receive an email. And then for each of those people, I will farm off and send a, or like kick off a, a sub background task basically to um, look up the person, figure out how much they owe, and then send an email uh, using SendGrid, I think. Um, just through the, 
I use the transactional email for those monthly reminders. And then I think that's kind of the, the main, the main use cases for those background jobs. So, okay. So when it comes to sending out those emails, do you keep some state in your database to, to know like a status flag where, okay, sent or completed or delivered or whatever? Yeah, I do. So I have webhooks that I listen to from SendGrid and then I will mark them as, yeah, open, read, clicked, or I, I can't remember all the different things that SendGrid gives you in the webhook, but I track all that state on the email object so that I can present it in the UI so the users can see, oh, we sent this many emails and we had this, this was our open rate. This is our like, you know, click through rate and conversion rate and things like that. So. Yeah, it's kind of funny for me. I don't know if it's like this for everyone else, but like developing a payment system is like, you know, especially the first time you do it, it's like, whoa, this is like the big leagues finally. But like sending email to me is like on a different level of even like more scary because it's like you never want to send like two emails or like accidentally like 15 or like duplicates. Like (laughs) tracking that stuff is like always super like, yeah, makes me uh, sort of not get the best sleep at night. Yes. Yeah. So I um, one thing I learned at a previous company, which I don't know if this is standard practice, but I have um. I have a, what's called a firehose email address and it's like an email alias for something and, or like a Google group or whatever, right? You can just create an email address and then I BCC that firehose email address with all outbound email so that I have a copy of every single email that was sent and I can like track down if I mess that up. (laughs) Um, So that's a technique that I've definitely found useful. Wow, that's actually super useful. I did not even know about that. Yeah, I would, I, w- I would recommend doing that um, for all, for all, uh, for all outbound email, at least for small applications. There's probably privacy concerns and whatever, but you can lock down the email address so, you know, only the right people have access to it. But um, that gives you like, oftentimes you want to preview what does this email look like and what did the, e- the customer see, and you might get a bug report of like, oh, this email was formatted weird. And so if you can track down exactly which email was sent because you have it in this giant fire hose inbox, that can make it really easy to debug to your debug your like email templates, which are also a giant nightmare. <laughs> so, um, oh, yeah, yeah, it's funny that you say email is the big leagues in, a, in a, another email story in a previous role. We were receiving and processing inbound email. Um, instead of webhooks, because we were working with some third parties that didn't actually provide webhook notifications, but they would send us an email. And so we would like ingest the email and then try to like parse it out and then use regex to like look at different things in the actual content of the email body. So that, that was actually like a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to say like, that's the opposite of a dream job. Yeah, it was tough. That was tough. So yeah. Now, speaking of like ingesting emails, does your application deal with like if a user is in their email client and they reply back to one of the emails that you send them, do you get any type of feedback in your back end anywhere? It does not, but it's definitely something I've thought about and it's something I've implemented for this other uh, this other product that was uh, that was part of my job was like building two way communication where it was built based on email. So. Um, yeah, we had like an internal message box basically in the user, kind of like GitHub, right? Where you, you can reply to messages on your PRs directly through the GitHub email or like through your email that you would receive about the message you received. Um, I don't, I don't have that built out, but for this application, but I have messed around with it in the past and in other jobs. Right. And I guess then you were using uh, like action mailer to, to receive that. So that was actually with Django, that app was built with Django. So we were using, I think we were using, I can't remember if it was Mailgun or what the inbound service was. Um, but then we would receive the webhook with Django and then process the, yeah, process the email content, um, with, I think we may have even had a library 
Um, I don't remember completely, but that was a Django app. So, okay. Now, just going back to maybe your tech stack a little bit, we didn't really get a chance to talk about how you have things set up in development because it's kind of interesting because the application is, you know, a little bit crusty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Probably we're not using Docker, considering Docker may have just been really close to being released then, like one or whatever. Like, do you just have this sitting and managed with like RVM or something else? Yeah, I think I'm using Arbenv, and in yeah, in development, it just it, it's been running locally just fine. Um, I've had to fight with dependencies a couple of times. I remember when the mime magic, the mime magic thing <laughs> happened recently. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I had to go in and make some updates, but. Um, and I had to upgrade a bunch of dependencies at that point. And then since then, I've been basically fine running everything locally. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't use Docker. I don't use any like sort of images or anything. I keep it super simple. I just run it locally with the, the versions that are installed. So Okay. Now, very earlier in the show, you mentioned something about having, what did you say, like 36 or 39 commits over the six years? Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you want to just break down, like, you don't need to go over all of them, but is it basically just like dependency updates or is it feature requests or a combination of basically anything? Um, yeah, it was a combination of both. Uh, a handful of them, I think probably maybe 25% are bug fixes and then probably more than 25% were dependency updates, security updates and things like that. And then let's see, some of them, I can actually, I don't know if I want to pull it up, but yeah, some of them were... Um, changes to email copy where I didn't actually, <laughs> I didn't expose the ability to change the copy to the user. And so they would like write and ask if I could change some transactional email copy. And so I would update it for them uh, manually. So like even including those types of copy changes, um, still, yeah, 39 commits. Nice. Yeah. So when it comes to dealing with those emails, like as we all know, as developers uh, creating HTML emails, like it is not, <laughs> not a fun task. Like do you yeah. use a specific gem for that? Or do you like to design these and send grids like web UI and maybe they just give you like an ID back that you call back? I, you know what? I actually, I think that I designed them with a tool, but I'm not remembering the name of the tool. It was like a tool specific to designing email templates that I used. Um, it, yeah, like, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to remember, but it was a, it was a UI you could sort of build out the template and then it would just spit out a bunch of HTML. And people familiar with working with HTML templates in email know that the rules that apply in email are very weird. And so the HTML it gave me back, I just trusted it and dropped it into the HTML ERB uh, locally and then kind of just used, um, yeah, used the ERB templating to, to update and insert the things that I needed for the, the actual copy of the email. And yeah, I, I would not recommend anyone try to build their own, write their own email templates from scratch unless they're going to be very, very simple. Yeah, for sure. Now, Heroku, I would like to talk a little bit about this. So, you know, earlier you mentioned moving to the cloud to your client. Very good idea. Did you run through like different other cloud providers before you decided to use Heroku or were you just like, you know what, I've used Heroku for a while. It's super easy to get going. Let's just roll with that. So I, I, had, uh, I had deployed a couple of things to DigitalOcean. And uh, I had, I, I'm like not a huge fan of all like doing all like the DevOps stuff. So running Nginx and Unicorn and Passenger and set, like basically setting up all of these tools for load balancing and worrying about, you know, is, uh, yeah, is the, is like the underlying box staying secure and, you know, is the, is the data secure and everything on DigitalOcean. I actually had like a security incident on a previous application that I was running on DigitalOcean. And so that kind of soured my taste for doing any of my own 
<laughs> like DevOps work. And so I think digital or I think Heroku was a, an obvious choice because it, it just abstracted away so, so much. Um, and so that's, yeah, that, that was what I chose at the time. I think if I were, if I were going back into that um, process today, I would probably take a real close look at a lot of the new uh, services that are out there that provide very similar tooling like render and maybe even hatchbox and um i, I think that DigitalOcean has come a long way with uh you know tools like doku and being able to like easily push to DigitalOcean. but at the time it was it was kind of a yeah it was pretty easy for me to choose heroku so right yeah we have to remember this is like 2015 era so exactly quite some time ago. exactly yeah but also cool to see like yeah i mean you don't always need to pick new hotness or whatever like heroku has been solid for how many years now or even like a decade maybe so yep Exactly, exactly, exactly. Now, you mentioned you have, what, one web server and a 2x worker. What about things like your Postgres database? Because it sounds like there probably would be a lot of records. Like, there's no way you can fit on the free tier on that one, right? Right, yeah. I'm using I'm using the paid, some paid version of uh, Heroku's Postgres database and also some paid version of Heroku's Redis database, I think. And those are just, those are the Heroku-managed services. So those obviously don't run inside of the web worker or inside of the the uh, the background dyno. But um, yeah, I just use the built-in sort of Heroku stuff. Okay. Do you happen to use any other uh, Heroku add-ons that we haven't talked about yet? Um, I think I mentioned Paper Trail. Um, yeah, so Paper Trail and Rollbar uh, are great. And I, I've used those a ton. Um, and then New Relic, the New Relic integration was the only other one that I think I had up and running for a while. Um, I did. I did move between a couple of different Redis boxes. I I don't think that Postgres had, or I'm sorry, I don't think that Heroku had its own Redis offering at the time that the app was built. But I think I can't remember. I think there was some issue with. I don't remember if it was Redis to Go or some other Redis tool that had like a third party add on in, inside of Heroku. Um, and then when I had issues with it, I just moved over to the Heroku version of Redis and I've been running fine on that one ever since. Okay. Yeah. I think I vaguely remember that with Redis back then, but yeah, I can't think of the name what that third party one was. Yeah. So a lot of us know by now Heroku makes it super easy to, you get push your code and you're done basically, but it's always still fun to hear about like, what is your actual workflow look like when you are developing a new feature? Well, I guess you're going to have to rewind a bit cause it's been a while since developing a new feature, but yeah. <laughs> like, do you like make a feature branch and then kind of like self do like, you know, solo code reviews and stuff? Like, does it get pushed up to GitHub first, et cetera? Um, so it depends on the feature. Um, I, I tend to, or I try to write tests for anything that's, that's mission critical. And so I will write the tests and run them locally. I don't have CI. If I was working on, if, if the, if the development team grew beyond just me, I would definitely set up CI somewhere, but, um, yeah, I, I will, uh, I'll build a, I'll build a feature and I tend, I don't write TDD. I will like write the tests after the fact in like this really weird process where, I'll build the feature and then I'll comment out everything for the feature and then write the tests and comment things in as I know that they're working. And then I will, yeah, I'll like run the test locally. I do have a staging server, but I don't actually deploy to it very much. It was useful during development early on, but um, I, yeah, I just usually just test it locally. And, and then if it works, then I'll deploy it directly to production and then I'll confirm sort of just like asking asking the user to confirm immediately basically. And then if there's any sort of data migration that's involved, then I will dump the production database and run the migration locally just to make sure that it's making the changes I expect and working as expected. But yeah, because it because the it's such a small user base, 
um, I've been able to move pretty quickly and with confidence that like it's probably going to work in production if it works locally. So um, yeah, and probably another another uh, process that would change a lot had the development team grown beyond one. Right. Yeah, that's awesome though. I mean, it sounds like you have basically your own personal pipeline and it works. So definitely can't argue with that. I am curious though about that non-TDD flow that you've invented here because I haven't heard about that strategy yet. Like I'm also like, I don't know, I'm not here to like pick sides or whatever, but I am not into TDD, TDD as well, right? Like for me, I, it, vo- it really motivates me to actually hack on the feature and see the live feedback in the browser. Maybe, you know, is it the most efficient way to, to write code? For me it is. And then I'll write tests afterwards, kind of like you, but what led you down the path to basically like actually go there and start commenting out your code before writing a test? Yeah. So, so I, I really like the feedback that you were talking about and, you know, basically just being able to iterate really quickly and maybe some would call it like spiking out a feature or like writing mm-hmm. the feature without any tests. And I, so that for me, the feeling of that where you're kind of iterating really quickly and seeing the changes happen immediately, like that sort of dopamine hit or that experience as a developer is why I like writing code and why I prefer writing uh, for the web specifically is because you can just see that feedback so quickly. And so for me, that is an important, a really important part of the workflow. And then the second part is that I've been bit so many times by not having tests that I'm like, okay, I've definitely got to go back and try to test this. So when you, when, I don't know, like in normal TDD flow, right? You have like this red green refactor process where you write a test and you watch it fail and then you fix or like you implement the change and watch the test pass or you implement a change and watch the test output change. And then you kind of like keep implementing changes until the test passes. Um, And so for me, commenting out all of the code that was part of the spike um, gives me the confidence that when I write a failing test, I know for sure that I'm testing or that like I'm starting from red instead of starting from green, right? So like one dangerous thing that, uh, that has happened to me in the past is write a bunch of code, write tests that I think are testing the code and they all just pass. And then in reality, they weren't actually testing what I thought they were testing. And so, yeah, I tried to like comment out the code and then comment it in bit by bit as I'm running the tests and just to like see the messages change so that it's kind of like validating all my assumptions about how the, the system works. And like, for instance, with a method, I will comment out the entire method and then I'll comment in just the name of the method so that I can like confirm that the output is changing from like no method found with this name to, oh, the method was found, but it returned nil basically. So that I can confirm that it's like actually calling that method. So it's kind of like, I don't know. I kind of go back to this analogy. When I was a kid, I used to like record these videos with an old school like video recorder and then try to edit them with like, (laughs) with the video recorder and the VCR and like all this stuff. And I remember sort of trying to debug all the systems and you got to check every single cable, you know, like, is this cable plugged into the right port? And then all the way back to the, to the video recorder. And uh, I kind of try to follow that same process with, with code and make sure that like each of the little bits um, or like each of the little pieces are connected correctly. And so that's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a different and weird process, but that's kind of like how I, how I like to work. Yeah. I really like it. Cause it's like, you get that dopamine hit, but also the satisfaction of knowing that, hey, this code is actually well-tested, not just like what I think needs to be tested. Exactly, exactly. Very cool. So you mentioned before that you do run a database dump before you do any type of migration, but do you also run any type of like manual database backups or do you just depend on like what Heroku provides you? I use what Heroku provides. Um, so I have it scheduled for daily backups, whatever the daily, yeah, Heroku backup is. 
Um, and then when I'm working on it, I'll, I'll do a local dump. Uh, and then I have a few copies locally that are, you know, several months old, but I haven't run into any major issues so far. And so, um, I'm kind of just banking on Heroku continuing to, to back up as expected. Yeah. I think at this point, like six years in the track records there, that things are pretty dependable. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I've, for this app, thankfully I haven't had to back up any, or I haven't had to restore for backup. Right. Yeah, I was just about to ask you here for this app, like, have you ever had to restore it at least once or have you tested it in production or no? I have not actually tested backing or like restoring production, but I've restored locally. So I know that like, at least locally, I can restore from production data. But I, I mean, yeah, I, when I was working one of my first jobs out of college, I dropped like one of the most important tables on the production database. <laughs> and so uh, I am uh, very familiar with, uh, yeah, scrambling to restore from backup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, um, you know, Stripe, amazing backwards compatibility with their API. And when it comes to Heroku, though, and you're, like you're depending on like their version of Postgres to run or their version of Redis to run, are they pretty good with keeping you on the versions that you've used for the last five or six years? Because I haven't used them for really like an extended period of time. Yeah. So it's been, I think when I was first, okay. So yeah, when I was first starting to use Heroku, I, I want to say that they were using a version of Postgres that might not have supported JSON fields or something. And that was something that I wanted for one of my applications. And that was one of the reasons why I explored DigitalOcean. But since then, they have all, all of their versions of Postgres, I mean, at least since this app was built, have supported all the features that I've needed. Um, and as they upgrade, it, it, it seems like they're just adding new stuff. It's not, they're also not breaking backward compatibility for any of the tools that I'm using. Okay. So technically, I guess behind the scenes, you may have started using, I don't know what Postgres version that would be back then, maybe eight, seven, nine, something yeah. like that. But like now has it been like seamlessly updated to 12, but your application still works the same? Yes. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool to see. Cause yeah, those big changes are hard to do, especially with older apps that you don't touch for a while. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Totally. Totally. Now, on the Heroku side, I, I really don't use them that much nowadays, but do they have any type of monitoring built in to help you determine like, you know, if this site happens to be down, like pinging the site every couple of minutes to see if it gets a 200? So I had, I, I did use um, Pingdom for a while, uh, but what, like the, the way that I find out that the site is down now is usually through, or so first of all, like I haven't actually gotten a Pingdom message for so long that I don't, <laughs> I don't know if, if that is, uh, is still up and running or not. But um, if there's like memory issues or generally like, I don't know, things that would bring the site down, I will tend to get a roll bar notification, which sends me an email. And then I can just like quickly go in and look at stuff. And I, I have not had like any outside of Pingdom, which may or may not still be up and running. I haven't looked into the uptime monitoring or uptime health checks for a really, really long time. So, yeah. Yeah. There's kind of like, I don't know, like a low key running joke on this podcast about things like the uptime monitoring, because you never know if the thing is actually working. That's monitoring your site, like pingdom in yeah. this case, because you never get notifications because it's never down. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's like, okay, uh, maybe pingdoms up. Who knows? Like I almost need like a ping that just tells me that pingdom is still working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because there was just a little bit of downtime with DigitalOcean recently in like New York City 3s where I'm at. And like that was the first time I got notified from Uptime Robot. For, like they're basically pinged them for like an uptime monitoring solution. But like I didn't receive a notification from them for like two years straight. And then finally I got one. So I'm like, okay, cool. At least Uptime Robot is working. Nice. Yeah, that's good to know. That's good to know. Yeah. So yeah, if, you've, if you're going to pick, if you're going to pick one now, it must be Uptime Robot. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. They have that like a sponsor. I just happened to use them. Yeah. So when it came to like monitoring stuff in terms of like the application, did you ever get to the point where the memory almost maxed out on that worker because there was like a traffic spike for some donation? I I have had it spike. Um, and that it, we had it spike a couple of times. And for a while I was looking into, so, okay. So number one, We've had it spike a couple of times and usually I have a little bit of heads up and I can go in and just scale to two web workers and that ends up making it totally fine. Um, and then separately, I have also had it, I've had the, uh, I've run out of memory on the background worker, which is why I use the standard 2X um, because the reports end up getting so large that like it's exporting whatever, more than a gig in CSV and I haven't, there's probably ways that I could optimize it to make it run a little bit faster uh, or like run it, run a little bit slimmer where it's sort of like streaming out to a file or something instead of having it all in memory. But yeah, I've, I've run out of memory on those, on those background workers before. Yeah. That's always a tricky problem. I've definitely dealt with like having to ingest like 800 megs of XML coming in from an API, but if you don't stream it, it's very easy to go out of memory. I'm curious though, like with those reports, do you have them set up in such a way where it's almost like impossible for there to be two really big reports running at the same time? Because I would imagine if you had like two two gig files or one gig file being turned on, then suddenly it's like you'd go out of memory pretty quickly. I, yeah, so I don't have anything fancy set up for that. If there are more than one report that's massive going on, then it will just, I think right now what, what might happen is the job would block um, because there's only one, there's only one worker. So yeah, I would, I would need to look into it, but yeah, it, it probably would just crash or like run out of memory, so. Yeah, that is interesting though. If it blocks, it's almost like lack of concurrency actually makes it work in the end. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, because I'm only pulling off one job on that background worker at a time. And so if it's running a report, then the other report just has to wait, whatever. Yeah, it's actually kind of nice in the end, like it works out. User doesn't see an error, maybe they just wait a little bit longer. Yes, exactly, exactly. Now, speaking about errors, I'm curious, do you have any like other near miss scenarios where it's like almost something bad happens, but some type of monitoring or you, you're basically able to catch the problem before it became a problem? I, so everything that I do is, is with Rollbar. I guess one interesting thing that, um, that I like to do with Rollbar and kind of catching a problem before it's, it's an issue and that I have found that like really delights the customer is that I, inside of the application controller, I will tag the current user on all of the logs. And then also, I think it, it also ties back to the roll bar report somehow. I can't exactly remember how that works, but I'm tag I'm basically like tagging the current user with all of their log statements. So in paper trail I can tell which user is making which request. And then I also tag each of the um, yeah each of the error reports with a specific user. And so if I get an error message on roll bar, then I will email the customer and say, hey, I saw that error message and I'm working on it right now. So it's just like a way to be pr super proactive about um, any 500s that you're throwing. And I've found that people are like, wow, like your 500 page said that you were looking into it and you actually are looking into it. You know, like <laughs> a lot of 500 pages will just say like, oh, sorry, something went wrong. We're going to look into it. And then, you know, they never hear about it. Um, so that that has been something that I've, it's kind of like a little little trick that I've liked to, liked to use. Yeah, that's awesome. And little things like that definitely go a long ways from like the customer point of view. Like it really brings that service to the next level. It's like something like they tell their grandkids about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we had a funny um, 404 page at the last company that I worked at that was just like a picture of one of the engineers um, doing something funny. It was like, your your app broke, but Jesse's going to look into it. <laughs> it was just like a picture <laughs> of Jesse. Like, 
but yeah, I think um, in practice, yeah, reaching out proactively about errors that happened that you know about for sure, um, instead of kind of being like, oh no, this thing happened, let me look at it really quick and hopefully I can fix it before they retry. If instead you just reach out and say like, hey, sorry about that, let me, uh, let me take a look and then I'll let you know when to retry. It can, it can go a long ways. Right. Do you happen to remember like the last time you had to reach out to someone due to like, a, I don't know, like a donation not happening or like whatever error they happened to get? Um, it's been, it's been a couple, uh, I guess it's been maybe like nine months or so. I think at the beginning of this year when a new campaign launched, something happened where there was like overlapping, there were some overlapping dates that were causing some error. And so, um, I didn't actually know what was happening at the time and I had to look into it and I, I reached out proactively. So nice. So we're coming to basically the end here. And now I get to ask one of my favorite questions, which is like, what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building all this out? I mean, you've already given some like really great advice, but just curious to anything else out there. Yeah, I think I think the best tips or like the thing that I really wanted to drive home was that like you can keep it super simple and keep by keeping it simple. That really drives down your maintenance overhead. So, yeah, minimizing your dependencies, minimizing, you know, the number of uh, fancy front-end frameworks that you're using. Keep I, I run everything inside of a monolith. I don't have a bunch of microservices. So you know, keeping everything in in one repo with all the dependencies in one spot that has that has gone a long, long way for me. Um, so even though there's a lot of really cool shiny front-end frameworks and really cool shiny new technologies that you can go out and use, a lot of times sticking to the vanilla path will make your life so much less stressful. So that's kind of like the main thing. Um, and then also, yeah, just like talking to your customers and trying to get as close as you can to, to, to them. If you can literally go sit next to them and watch them, um, all the better. So I guess those are kind of like the, the two big takeaways. Right. And make sure that you bring a laptop if you're sitting next to them so you can live code features right in front of them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really good advice all, all around, right? Just sticking with uh, the tools that you can use from your framework of choice if possible. I'm curious though, just before we wrap this up, if you were to build a, a brand new application today, like the version of this application, would you still use Rails? Would you use things like Turbo and Streams, et cetera? Yes. So I would definitely use Rails just because it continues to be the framework I'm most productive in. I would not use, I would probably not use pusher. I would use the built-in, uh, the, yeah, the built-in streams and turbo and where I needed to actually make like a really real time, uh, experience. And then I think I would probably, instead of using like paperclip, I would just use the built-in active storage. There's a lot of features that have come out at, that are built in now into rails, more batteries that are included in rails that I would probably just use instead of, um, third-party stuff to again, decrease those number of dependencies. Yeah, definitely. So CJ, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. So before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, I would love, I mean, if, if folks are interested in, you know, beginner intermediate content um, on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash CJ Avila. And then all the other links to social stuff is on my website, cjav.dev, cjav.dev. Um, and yeah, happy to, happy to chat if folks have questions about Stripe or just generally, uh, yeah, keeping things simple. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I'll make sure to drop all that stuff in the show notes. And on that note to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the running in production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.